The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. And now, with Patricia Raskin Positive Living, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Everyone and welcome, welcome to Patricia Raskin Positive Living, and uh, we have a, a really interesting and compassionate and compelling program for you in our first half hour, and it's a story that I think is is really important to be told. With lung cancer awareness coming um, in November, so it's just been passed. We want to talk about a book that was co-authored by my guest, Frank Terrazano. The book is Life with Cancer, the Lauren Terrazano story. It's a biography about his daughter, a remarkable woman, and Pulitzer Prize social journalist for Newsday. Frank and Lauren are both Boston natives, and so we are talking today to Frank Terrazano, Lauren's dad, and uh, this book was also um, co-authored as well by Paul Leonardo. And we just want to talk a little bit about Lauren. She was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2004 at the age of 36. For three years, she battled the disease, several rounds of cancer treatment, the removal of a lung, and from 2006 in October until her death in May 2007, she wrote a weekly column in Newsday titled Life with Cancer. In it, she shared, shared experiences with cancer, the treatment, the higher incidence of the disease in women, the research being done, personal reflections, as well as the stigma associated with the disease. Frank, her dad, who is with me now, is determined to shed light on this topic as a tribute to his daughter and will continue donating proceeds to several lung cancer organizations that he supported since his daughter's illness. Welcome, Frank. Thank you very much for having me. Yes. Oh, you're welcome. And did I say Paul's name correctly? Yes, you did. Paul Leonardo. Good. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. All right. So I think I want to start by asking you, um, you've authored this book that you want to share. Is this your first book? Yes, it is. Okay. And, you know, it. why did you decide to write it? Well, you know, uh, Lauren, my Lauren was always, uh, she always set uh, high ideals and goals for herself when she was young. And she was a truly altruistic, uh, thoughtful young lady. I recall her often saying that when she started, when she first started uh, her career in journalism, she said, Daddy, someday I'm going to, I'm going to get a Pulitzer Prize and I hope uh, to write a book. Well, she accomplished uh, the first in part. Uh, she shared a Pulitzer with her Newsday colleagues for coverage of the 1996 uh, TWA Flight 800 disaster off Long Island. Mm. And uh, sadly, uh, she wasn't able to write the book, and, and I'm hopeful in some small way that my book about her fulfills that wish. You know, the prime reason, Patricia, that I wanted to write this book is Lauren was very courageous when she battled um, the, the lung cancer that uh, she was diagnosed with, and for the last seven or eight months uh, as she wrote that weekly column. But I wanted to point out the fact that uh, the prime reason for the book was to, to make readers aware that Though she, she wrote it courageously, you know, uh, about her life and the battle with cancer, that Lauren, during all of her journalism career, wrote primarily about the plight of those in our society who had fallen through the cracks. She, she championed causes of abused children, the elderly, and the homeless, and truly became a voice for the voiceless, you know. So I wanted to get that out there also, you know, and, and uh, because that's exactly what she, she did for most of her 14 years as a journalist. Yeah, which is, so she really made a huge contribution. Absolutely. Huge. Absolutely. Was it um, was it difficult emotionally to revisit the good times and and the tough times in Lauren's life? Extremely, uh, very. You know, uh, 
you know, uh, this is something uh, I did not have any training for. Uh, I, um, I'm just a high school grad. <laughs> I, I got through English, I guess, okay, English in <laughs> high school, but uh, I decided uh, I wanted to write this book after she passed away. Uh, I started it in December of uh, 2010. And uh, not having really any any experience, I uh, uh, I had 50 or 60 pages of basically mishmash, you know, on my word processor, and, and uh, had no structure. And, and uh, fortunately, as I say, I was able to uh, make connection with Paul, and he helped me immensely. He being a published author, so he really helped me to put this thing together. And uh, it was difficult, really uh, as I say, while we were writing, uh, because uh, every time. You know, we we have to submit the manuscript back to the to the publisher. They in turn, their editors would come back with uh, changes here, there, and, and it was just rereading. And, and I mean, it's a double-edged sword. You know, you 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 are happy. You want to do this uh, for your daughter. You know, you want, and hopefully that the book will will provide uh, uh, information to to people about the disease. And but by the same token, um, you know, uh, you're reliving everything that she went through. You know, and, and that's kind of mm-hmm. difficult. Yeah. How did Paul get involved with this, the co-author? You know, I, I uh, as I said, uh, one evening I was watching a, uh, a Boston television station, and uh, I happened to be watching the news, and it was, it was, uh, he was on, uh, uh, on the program. He was um, promoting a book that he had uh, co-written with a, a woman from Massachusetts, and uh, he had his website and he had his um, uh, his email address. And, and and when I looked at that, I said, "Geez, this is exactly what I need. I need somebody that can help me uh, because I, as I said, I was I was uh, I hit uh, what is it? What do they call it? writer's block? I guess is what what it's called. Uh, you know, you reach a point where you can only do so much, and then uh, you just lose everything. Well, anyway, uh, I got a hold of him. I sent him an email, and uh, I got I heard from heard back from him. I told him what I was what I intended to do, and he was really uh, enthusiastic about it. And uh, we connected, and uh, that's that's how we we did it." Which is really great, because you got the help that you needed in terms of the writing style. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, everyone. We are back. You are listening to Patricia Raskin, Positive Living. And I am talking with Frank Terrazano. And he is talking about the book that he co-authored with Paul Leonardo called Life with Cancer, which tells the story of the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Lauren Terrazano, his daughter, who spent her career reporting on a variety of Long Island community and societal issues for Newsday. The subjects she wrote about most frequently included homeless children, care for the elderly, and in particular, child welfare. Lauren was a recipient of the prestigious Anna Quinlan Awards of Excellence in Journalism on behalf of children and families. She was diagnosed in 2004 in August uh, with a non-smoking-related lung cancer at 36. And she passed in um, May of 2007, but she really, really worked very hard 
to fight this disease. And statistically, lung cancer kills 170,000 women each year, a number that eclipses the collective annual deaths of victims of breast, ovarian, and uterine cancer combined. While the correlation between cancer and smoking is no longer a debate, what's not understood is why more than 10% of the time, lung cancer patients have never smoked. And for women diagnosed with lung cancer, it's upwards of 20%. So we're still looking at that. Um, welcome back, Frank. Thank you. Any more research on that? I mean, Lauren did not smoke. Any more research on um, on lung cancer for women who don't smoke? You know, uh, I can remember Lauren when she was writing her her weekly columns. Uh, the stats that she she had uh, had put in, in into some of those columns. I remember in, in 2006 she had done research and and, and uh, uh, the, the, the statistics just just uh, really blew me away because. She had said that uh, in two, uh, there were 213,000 women who were diagnosed with breast cancer in 2006. Mm. And of those, uh, 40,000 women, uh, unfortunately, had passed away. Mm. Uh, in that same year, uh, 82,000 women were diagnosed with lung cancer. And 72,000 passed away as a result of the disease. So just the, the numbers just blew me away. you know. And we couldn't realize... Uh, that lung cancer, I guess, is the number one killer, and it kills more more women uh, than breast, colon, and oh, I shouldn't say more women, but uh, kills more people than than breast, colon, and prostate cancer combined. Wow! And we, but we still haven't figured out the non-smoking part. No, that's right. We still haven't figured out whether it, whether it's the environment, whether it's, it's secondhand smoke. I mean, no one knows, uh, you know. But again, the stigma has always been there that hey, you've got lung cancer. Well, the reason you got lung cancer is because you're a smoker. That isn't right. necessarily the case. Right. And she really fought this disease, didn't she? Absolutely, absolutely. She she gave it one hell of a fight, you know. Um, she uh, she um, uh, she didn't mince any words either. I mean, she she laid it right on the line exactly what she was going through. You know, I got an instance an instance where where I'd like to point out uh, toward the end of her life. I think it was maybe a couple of weeks or two or three weeks before she passed away. She was determined to get a hold of. Uh, I think at the time, Camel cigarettes uh, was was had a campaign about um, Joe Camel, I think, with uh, women uh, trying, to, trying to push uh, cigarettes on women, I guess. And Lauren was able to get a hold of the marketing guy and uh, from her hospital bed, and uh, she interviewed him, and she asked him, basically, she was chastising him, you know, uh, about the fact that uh, they're, they're promoting this, the smoking to women, to young women. And he never even knew she was calling from her hospital bed, and she was three weeks away from death, you know. Uh, she just let it on that he was just, she was just a journalist doing a story, and... Uh, Trying to get as much information as she could uh, about uh, uh, the tobacco companies and what have you, and he during the entire interview, as I said, he he never even knew that she was uh, she was in her hospital bed doing this interview, you know. So, but uh, that's the journalist that she was, you know. She um, she truly when she when she when she picked up uh, a subject, uh, boy, she went after it. Uh, you know, she was tenacious with with regard to to uh, going after the story and, and getting all the facts and figures and, and uh, uh, so. I don't know what else to say about her, but uh, she was just a terrific kid and a terrific journalist. And, and uh, How do you feel after having written the book? Are you glad you wrote it, and kind of what has it done for you and your family? I'm, I'm, I'm glad we, I, I wrote it. As I said, that was one of Lauren's uh, desires, you know, one of the things she always used to say to me, and, and, and uh, I wanted to do it uh, for her in that respect. You know, she, she uh, just was a great kid. I mean, she was very – she cared about everything. She really cared, uh, as I say uh, – Especially for, for people uh, less fortunate than ourselves. I mean, we, we were fortunate, uh, had a good upbringing, had a good good life. Uh, uh, there are others in this world that, uh, just as she often said, fall through the cracks. And she used to go after those stories and try to make things right. You know, and, and uh, I, I, I'm glad that she was that uh, that type of an individual. You know, I I, I tend to be I, I am. There's no question about it that I'm I'm a liberal. Okay, extremely. Uh, liberal in my thinking, and, and, and uh, that we always have to help those less fortunate than ourselves. And I'm so happy that my daughter uh, followed in my footsteps. You know, she uh, she mm-hmm. chose to, to go that route as, as well. Absolutely. What do you want people to come away with, Frank, after uh, they've read the book? Well, uh, I indicated earlier that I want people to know that uh, she was a very courageous young lady. Uh, uh, she she went after this. Uh, she. This disease, uh, as a matter of fact, I just want to give you one instance how how involved she was with regard to um, uh, how she cared about people. You know, back in, in 2004, as I said, she was diagnosed, and then uh, in December of 2004, they removed her lung, and uh, they continued with radiation and chemotherapy uh, after that into 2005. And uh, in October of 2005, uh, she was kind of in a, a remission. I guess they call it remission, but 
with cancer. One little errant cell gets away. They, they tell us that they got everything, but one little errant, as I said, cell gets away, and, and sure enough, it pops up elsewhere, you know, in the body. But uh, in Oct- uh, Lauren attended Columbia University, and she became uh, good friends with a, with a young woman from Guatemala by the name of Dina Fernandez, and they were really close friends. And uh, Dina would come up to visit us uh, from time to time, and likewise, Lauren would, would go down to uh, Guatemala. Well, in October of 2005, uh, Dina invited her to go down there, you know, to get away from, she was in remission and to get away from all of her treatments and so forth. So Lauren flew down. And while there, uh, it was shortly after Hurricane Stan hit the area. And, and Lauren, being the, the journalist that she is, uh, was, um, I don't know how she did it. We still don't know to this day, but she, she was able to contact the U.S. Army, uh, Southern Command, uh, because they were there on a mission of mercy. They were helping, uh, um, uh, people from Guatemala, because a lot of the villages had been inundated with rain and, and causing massive mud, mudslides, and entire villages were, were enveloped in, in the mudslides. And uh, so Lauren somehow was able to convince the U.S. Army Southern Command to allow her to fly on a Chinook helicopter for 15-plus hours with four young, mm. very brave U.S. Army soldiers delivering foodstuffs and water to all of these uh, these villages, you know. And uh, we never knew anything about it uh, until she got back from, from Guatemala. You know, she always... She always did not want to worry about us. You know, we, we hovered over her. She used to refer to us as uh, mm. as her personal helicopter pilots, but mm. for admittedly, we did lots of hovering during the 39 years she was with us, you know. But likewise, Lauren was always concerned for our well-being and uh, uh, always uh, kind of shelter, try to shelter us from any bad you news know, or anything of that nature. Frank, losing a child is, is the worst. Um, uh, what, what advice do you give to other parents who have been through something like this? You know, to you know, stay positive and it's tough. You know, it, it was it was um, it's awfully it's, it's difficult to give you know to give that type of advice. I mean, all I know is that you love your child, you do whatever you can for him. You know, you know, all my life, uh, I sometimes uh, I say to myself, when Lauren was in school, when she was in college, it was you know I was I was always there, able to help to do whatever I had to do. You know, moving her from from uh, her dorms uh, to her apartments during during the summer months after she was out of college. You know. And, and uh, uh, I, I, the thing that, I, that bothers me more than anything is the fact that uh, I could not help her with this. You know, I did whatever I could, but uh, to this day I still uh, feel like I've, I've not a, I don't know, I can't put it into words. I get emotional every time I think about it, mm. you know, but, but, uh, but, but you've left quite a legacy for her in this book. I, I hope so. You know, she, she left a legacy to herself. It wasn't me. I mean, just her good work, the good works and the good acts that she did while she was with us, you know. Uh, she, she, she left her own legacy. I, I'm just uh, I'm bringing it out, and, and, and as I said in the book, that she always wanted to write. And, and, uh, but she, 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 um, uh, she accomplished uh, the good things in life, you know, that, that uh, most people uh, want to do. Frank, why did you title the book Life with Cancer? Okay, you know, she titled it actually, uh, and, and originally my the book, the book, uh, my book, my title for the book was Reaching for the Sky, because as a child, uh, uh, I was a, uh, a kite aficionado, you know, and I loved kites, and when Lauren was young, I used to take her to the beach all the time, and, and we'd fly uh, kites, and she'd always get enthusiastic, you know, about the kites, and always wanted to make it go higher and higher. She said, Daddy, we'd be running along the beach there trying to get the, the kite airborne, and I can remember her saying, Daddy, make it go higher, make it go higher. That's all she, you know. And she always reached for the sky, so I, I, that, that was the original title for my book. But Lawrence wrote her column, Life with Cancer, and the publishers thought that um, Reaching for the Sky was kind of a generic uh, uh, type title. I guess there were other books that may have been published with that. Mm. So they, they, they suggested that we go with the, uh, the Life with Cancer. And, 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 and that, I'm glad we did that because that, in essence, was her, her choice for the, for the title of her column. You know, she always used to say to me, Patricia, that uh, uh, the life comma with cancer was the way she put it. She says, Daddy, I'm going to live my life. She says, I've got cancer, but cancer is secondary. My life comes first. And that's, that's exactly what she attempted to do for the, uh, for the three years that, as she fought this disease. You know, so, so that's basically uh, why uh, we've got the name that we have on the book. And I know that you are donating proceeds from the book yes. to several cancer organizations, lung yes. cancer organizations. Right. And, her, and we, have a, we established a scholarship also at Columbia in her name. And, and uh, it, uh, there are three organizations, the Columbia University, the, the Lung Cancer Alliance, and um, uh, Uniting Against Lung Cancer. Lauren wrote about the latter two uh, shortly before her death. And, and uh, uh, Lauren also received an award from uh, the Uniting Against Lung Cancer. It was, it was then uh, called Jones, uh, the Joni Award, uh, Jones Legacy. 
and we were for, we were well, I wouldn't call it fortunate, but uh, we were happy to accept the award uh, posthumously in her honor uh, in New York on November of 2007. And then in 2008, we received another award posthumously on her behalf um, from the. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, I've lost my my train of thought here. Uh, she she received the award. She was she was named uh, an Advocate of the Year, um, uh, and. Uh, we went down to uh, Long Island to accept this award, and uh, there were more people that came up to us at the dinner, uh, uh, just telling that they had run. They were run, they used to run uh, homes for uh, homeless children, uh, uh, abused children, and the homeless, and and uh, they came up to us, and, and and more people told us about you know because of her writing about the organization, the various organizations uh, uh, that uh, they, they, that helped them to get funding and, and, and so forth and so on, and, and she would even. She would even go out. Uh, we were told uh, she would even go out with them sometimes on cold winter evenings, you know, uh, trying to get the homeless back to the shelters and so forth and so on. You know, so the kid just just cared about a lot a lot about people. You know, and uh, I'm sorry. I understand. Now you did a beautiful job in talking about this. It's very courageous. Tell people how they can get the book. The book's available at just about any major bookstore. As a matter of fact, uh, any of the bookstores, if if they don't particularly have it, uh, you know. Uh, in, in the store itself, they they will gladly order it for you. It is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, so uh, it, it's readily available to anybody. So, really appreciate that. So, let's just say the name of the book again. The book it's is Life with Cancer. The Lauren Terrazano story. story, written by her father Frank Terrazano, uh, with his co-author Paul Leonardo. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Really Patricia, appreciate thank, it. Patricia, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to tell the story about my daughter. Thank you. And you can log right on to voiceamerica.com and hear this interview. It will be right there. Thank you so much. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Do you feel as if your life is just filled with random awkward moments? Believe me, you're not alone. Tune in every Friday for TAG, the Awkward Girl Guide, with your host, Ashley Iola. Ashley has learned to own her awkward, and she guides you how to do the same. It's awkward, but it can be a lot of fun, too. We'll talk about relationships, sports, food, health, family life, and social life. Each show hopes to make you a bit more in control of your awkward. Tune in to TAG, the Awkward Girl Guide, Fridays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
Behind the Line is all about the inside of sports from a kid's point of view. This is a look at all of the action from Behind the Line. Join your host every Wednesday at 3 p.m., whether you're a kid or was a kid at some time in your life. We'll run down all of the scores, talk about the games of the past week, and preview what's coming up in the next week. You'll want to take notes because this is good stuff. The place to be Wednesdays at 3. That's 6 p.m. Eastern is the Voice America Kids channel for Behind the Line. Do you find yourself tearing pictures of rooms out of magazines? Do you watch certain movies and TV programs because of the homes they show? Are Sundays reserved for open houses? Then you are a home dreamer. And someday, you will build or renovate your dream home. Steve Clip has spent three decades learning how to win at the dream home game. His show, Winning the Dream Home Race, can be heard every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Let Steve Clip help save you money and make you a winner. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Hi, everyone. We are back. I have a very exciting guest for you for our second half of this program. I'm, I'm really Really thrilled. Uh, my guest is Sylvia Day. Sylvia Day's books are number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, her book that we're talking about today is Reflected in You. It's the second book in her Crossfire series, which, believe it or not, for those of you Fifty Shades of Grey lovers, it dispatched E.L. James' Fifty Shades of Grey from the top spot of the New York Times trade paperback fiction list with over 100,000 copies sold in its first week. And this book, Reflected in You, remains number one in its second week, which was November. Sylvia Day's Crossfire series is now the leading erotic fiction series in the world. Reflected in You debuted as the number one best-selling book on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and Canadian Booksellers Association list. So I am, I am very, uh, I'm very excited to welcome on this program Sylvia Day. Hi, Sylvia. Hi, I'm, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. And I, I want to say something about you, because I think your background is fascinating. Uh, let's just say you have won the Book Reviewers Review Ch- uh, Choice Best Book Award, the National Reader's Choice Award twice, and you were nominated for the RITA twice. You are a wife and mother of two and a former Russian linguist for the U.S. Army Military Intelligence. I want to know how you go from a linguist, <laughs> right, in the military intelligence to writing steamy and amazing erotic novels. Can you explain that, Sylvia? <laughs> Well, you know, I tell people that my, my time in the military was actually a detour because when I was 12, I knew I wanted to be a novelist. And uh, my mom had handed me a book, and she said, I want you to read this, and I read it, and I absolutely loved it. And that week, I had an assignment in uh, my English class. I was in junior high. And uh, the teacher said, you know, I need you to write a, an essay on what you want to be when you grow up, which is a horrible question to ask a 12-year-old. But, you know, I, I was already determined at that point that I was going to be a writer, so that's, that's what my essay was, was I'm, a, I'm going to grow up and be a novelist. And, of course, I imagined that that meant that I was going to be wearing, you know, fur stoles and, and, and have little dogs with diamond collars. And, I mean, totally, totally overblown expectation of what being a novelist was. But, you know, that was my goal. And then, of course, as life moves on and I go to school and, and you know, things were turbulent uh, in the world, and joining the military seemed to be, uh, you know, my calling at that time. So I, I went, I went that way. And then when I got out of the military, you know, I sat down, I looked back and said, you know, what did you always want to do? You know, what, what really speaks to you? And that was writing. So, you know, I, I kind of took a circular route to get there, but so, you know, I say that my military experiences are, are a detour that flavors my writing. Yeah, I'm sure because some of the in your book, some of the um, oh the plots, you know, could have that that kind of uh, secretive intelligence aspects to it. So some of that's in your books. Yes, 
And there's all different things. You know, I, I mean, I've had people ask, you know, if there's some of my military background in there. And the answer is, of course. You know, I don't write military thrillers, uh, say, like Tom Clancy. But, uh, you know, everything, every writer's experiences overall in their life flavors what they write. And so there's mm-hmm. little pieces of it here and there. Why erotic, why erotic novels? Like most writers, I write what I like to read. And I am erotic fiction reader, so I write erotic fiction. I mean, that that really, to me, to have characters who have difficulty expressing themselves verbally, and that Mm -hmm. the only way that they can really communicate how they feel and what they're going through at a particular time is physically, I mean, it's, it's extremely difficult as a writer, and I love that challenge. And it's different with every character, because each character's traumas and experiences of mm-hmm. course are, are unique to them so how they how they express those things physically are unique to them uh, I, it, I love it yeah i want to say something because i read both both of your books and i just finished uh this one that i have in my hand reflected in you and one of the things i noticed is the relationship between between gideon uh, and uh, between him and her is that I found that uh, between him and Eva, I should say, was very um, tumultuous and addictive. And I thought about that in terms of, you know, people who get into addictive relate where they're just obsessed with each other. And, you know, they can't live without each other. They can't live with each other. And they look at each other and they're, you know, they're all they're very excited. How do you feel about that in general? You know, and because that that can be very problematic for people as well as exciting. We, that came up, that aspect of the relationship came up as I did the research for the book. Because, of course, both Gideon and Ava are, are childhood sexual abuse survivors. So in, in right. my research for that and speaking with other survivors, uh, a lot of them, once they do find somebody that they connect with, uh, because it, it's it's almost as if the world is in black and white, and then they meet somebody who is so vibrant and colorful to them, they cannot imagine going back to what they had before. That level of codependency, really, uh, is it, it flavors many relationships, uh, depending, of course, on, on whatever your particular traumas are, your background experiences. Uh, it, it's just, it exists. It, a lot of people, you know, I, I was surprised when I was doing the research that, you know, one out of every six men were abused in some way as a child and one out of every four women that's a huge number well and you know what and if it's and the thing is sylvia if it's not the the sexual abuse or or whether it's it could be emotional like emotional incest or emotional abuse that also carries its scars it does yes and the fact that it's so prevalent is just horrifying but, yeah. it, you know, and so that that aspect of their relationship is actually quite common. Is it healthy? No. But, of course, they understand that as characters that it's not healthy. And yeah. the whole Crossfire series is is their journey in trying to yes, take to, to work their relationship it out. and make it healthy. Yeah, and to work it out. And that I saw, particularly at the very end of the book, which which comes to a very big climax and then kind of ends and leaves you in suspension, which I won't talk about for the next book. But I think at the very end, I understood that, you know, there really is tremendous love between these two. The other thing that I thought was very interesting is the character that you bring in, Carrie, who is Eva's best friend. And it almost is like it's a triangle between them, but it isn't a triangle because he's strictly platonic with her. He's not platonic with anybody else, <laughs> but he is with her. <laughs> and, and, um, and so what's interesting for me there is really understanding that dynamic because there are many times in life when we will have a relationship, whether it's marriage or with a, a significant other, and then we'll have another friend. And what you bring out in the book is that it becomes okay. It become it first. It's not understood, but then it's acceptable because we do love more than one person. I mean, it's not again. It's one is platonic and one is not, but the love is still the same. I mean, she has a great love for Carrie as much as she has a love for Gideon. The difference is that she's in an intimate relationship with Gideon. Speak right. to that. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I have a girlfriend of mine who actually has one of her very best friends um, is a, is a gay male, and. Uh, her husband calls him her second husband <laughs> because, you know, he provides 
a, a different sort of emotional support than her husband does. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, of course, there's nothing romantic there. There's no physical relationship there. But, yes, I mean, of course, as, as human beings, we do have, have tight-knit relationships with people other than our, our partners. And, uh, and, yeah, I mean, we have to celebrate those things. And, you know, Ava works very hard to keep that relationship solid even as she builds a relationship with Gideon. And, yeah. and that's important, you know, for everyone. That, yeah, that and we, you just, we make sure you don't lose yourself in a relationship by cutting yourself off from the people who are important to you. Well, and that's what starts to happen. She does start to lose herself, but as you said, she does catch herself. And your and your your descriptions are be- beautiful. I mean, the, the way you describe her mother and Gideon's mother, and and you really get a picture of these people, the affluence, but also the damage, you know, that's been done. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's really very well done. Uh, talk about the, the sexuality in this book. Cause it's very, very graphic. Um, and, and it's different. It's different from the, uh, E.L. James series, the Fifty Shades of Grey. It's different from the trilogy in that there's, there's more, um, I don't know what you want to call it, whether you want to call it bondage or whether you want to call it S&M. It's different from what you write about. You don't have that element in your writing. No. And in this case, you know, with Gideon and Ava, these are two people who were traumatized through sex. So for them to have to have a very strong, emotional, and respectful relationship with their partner, pain and humiliation has no place in that. They've already had that. And that, that, is, not, that is not what they want in their relationship in a loving relationship with their partner. So mm-hmm. there was no way for those, those two characters to go there because they right. were taken there in, in a situation against their will, and it's traumatic. So, you know, for them it's different, but Gideon is still a very dominant person. And, you know, one thing, to, you know, to understand about dominant submissive relationships is BDSM is, you know, there's bondage and there's sadomasochism, but that's not necessarily a part of a dominant and submissive relationship. Mm-hmm. It's more of a power control, you know, power play between two people. Is yeah. Can I give up control to somebody else? And for Gideon, he needs control. And for Ava, she needs to trust the partner that she has so much that she could give them that. Yes. So it's so, a very different dynamic, yes. Yeah, it, it is different. Yet, yet, I mean, the sexual scenes are graphic. I mean, and they're graphic. I mean, you, you really, you, you know, you really get inside of the bed, so to speak. And that, because that's part of these, Those two characters can't communicate verbally very well. They try. Uh, you yeah. know, they, they do try to work things out yeah. and, and discuss things. And when they do hit, a, you know, a snag, they do stop and say, okay, let's talk about what just happened. But really, they still communicate most effectively physically. So that having sure. the graphic sex scenes, of course, is not gratuitous because that's, you see a side of their relationship through those scenes that you couldn't see otherwise. And mm-hmm. over at the end of every scene, their relationship is in a different place. It moves yeah. them forward in some way or another. Yeah, it was very interesting. And again, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to spoil this for people who are reading the book. But, you know, in one scene, they go away together and it's idyllic. And then they come back to more of a tumultuous physical relationship because of something else that happens. So you do right. see that switch. You do yes. see that switch. Uh, S- Sylvia, talk talk about, I'd really love your opinion about this, about what you feel is healthy sexuality today. You know, it is so, um, it's it's really difficult. We have so many mixed messages about sex. In, in one sense, it's beautiful. In the other sense, oh, don't even talk about it. And yes, you can do this, but no, you can't do this. Uh, where, where do you, where are your feelings on this? Well, I think sexuality is very personal. So, I, you know, I understand both sides of should we discuss this openly or should we not discuss this openly? Because what's personal for somebody, of course, uh, is how they express that is unique to them. Some people are more open naturally and some people are less. But I think the most important thing in any sort of sexual situation and in dealing with your own sexuality is to be honest and to trust your partner. And as long as you have those things, you can have a healthy and functional sexual relationship, regardless of whatever kinks or, or fetishes or you may have or may not have. As long as you have trust and respect between you, yourself, and your partner, you can have a healthy and wonderful sexual relationship. I hope that as 
readers are, you know, reading more erotic fiction and seeing, you know, through fictional couples, you know, relationships in which the, you know, partners are sharing and talking and being open about what they want, what they need, what they like, what they don't like, that that encourages more people to do that because, you know, there's, there's a problem when you're so nervous or, or you know, uh, restrained in discussing your sexuality that you're not even sharing with your partner. Mm. And that happens a lot, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does, unfortunately. And, you know, I, the the whole series, the Crossfire series, of course, is, is now translated in, in 38 different foreign languages. And some of the you know, foreign presses contacted me, and the number one thing that they said was, we're so surprised because, uh, you know, our, our thought had always been that Americans were puritanical and didn't like sex. And yet, you know, the, the top five books in the country are Fifty Shades and Crossfire. So we're, we're rather astonished that actually you like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, what, you know, we're, yeah. yes, we're Americans, but we're also human beings too. And, you know, we have the same sexuality as anyone else does. Uh, Tell me, what, what's, your, what's your feeling about, and I remember Barbara Walters asking this question to E.L. James. She called it mommy porn. What's your comment about that? I can say that the only time I've really had somebody ask me about that has usually been a male reporter. And I, I think that's more of a, a, more of a male-based structure, trying to, trying to relate it to something that they're familiar with. Men... Typically, as far as dealing with erotic fiction or any sort of erotica, uh, deal with porn. It's a totally different subset. It's very quick. You know, it's uh, so in order for them to relate what women are doing with erotic fiction, they relate it in, in their viewpoint. And that, of course, brings in the porn thing. But erotic fiction is not porn. Well, They're you very know, different in- things. Well, but that's interesting because women often have a great emotional attachment with sex. And then all, not all men do. Women tend to. So there is your difference right there where there's well, emotion. That's, that's the difference, right. That's the difference between erotic fiction and porn because porn right. is designed just to sexually to lead the reader. So it's very wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Get to the point, arouse the reader, and get to the end. Whereas erotic fiction Women have to feel a connection to the characters before they can feel any mm. connection to them having sex. Yeah. They, yeah. Otherwise, they don't care. They don't want to watch two people have sex unless they actually care about what these, what these characters are going through. And so erotic fiction has to have that whole story, that whole background, yeah. and draw the reader in emotionally before they can arouse the reader. Yeah, that's wonderful. Where, how did you come up with the characters? How did you find Gideon and, uh, and Eva? Well, I had started writing, I, you know, I write in several genres. Uh, I've been writing for almost 10 years, published for almost 10 years. And uh, I was working on a historical romance for one of my uh, publishers, uh, dealing with a couple that had abuse in their past. Um, the heroine was, was a victim of, of parental child abuse, and uh, the hero had some emotional uh, parental abuse. And so when they came together, this was their point of connection this is how they related to each other was that they both had these experiences but as I was writing the book I was thinking you know it's it's probably more likely that it would push them apart rather than bring them together because Mm -hmm. the way in which they deal with that would be totally different so as I started researching the effects of, of trauma on the because the way men react to trauma and females react to trauma even if it's the same exact trauma are very different and as I as I do, went through the research, that's when Gideon and Ava started to really take shape in my head. Mm. Mm. And now, what's the future of uh, of all of this? You have another novel coming out. Uh, this is their second novel, right? The first one was bared to you, or bared in you, and this one's reflected in you. What's the third one? Entwined with you. Wow. And do you will there be another one after that? Do you think, or do you think you'll go to another series after that? Um, at this point, originally it was it was conceived to be a trilogy. At this point, it may roll over into a fourth book. Um, I can't see it going beyond that. Uh, but then, yes, you know, I mean, I'm still under contract with multiple publishers. I have other series that I have in the works. Um, so, you know, yes, there'll be there'll be another project after that. 
All right, so I've got a question that I don't think you're going to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Will Gideon and Eva get married? <laughs> well, we're talking about a couple that's extremely possessive. Both of them are very jealous. For them, yeah. ultimate possession is, is pretty much what they're going to have to have from each other in order to feel confident in their relationship. So mm. for them, I really could not see them not getting, staying in the relationship and not getting to that point. Mm, that's very, very interesting. Do you think that's healthy, Sylvia, to be that uh, that jealous and entwined? Do you think it's that's healthy? I think if you recognize that it's unhealthy, that you work on on trying to address those to mm-hmm. to realize what the root of the of your jealousy is. You know, as long as you recognize the problem, acknowledge it. Uh, that's really all you can you can expect. I mean, in, in this case, both of them are trying very hard to 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 let the other person exist as an individual as well as exist as part of the couple. So you know that that whole process. I mean, it's a process for them, and eventually, you know, hopefully they'll get there. And they, as far as real life couples, the same thing. I mean, the hope is that you recognize that maybe you're being a little bit unreasonable. And then address what the core problem is and try to, you know, try to let the other person be who they are separately from who they are as part of the other half of you. Yeah, absolutely. It's really wonderful. Let me ask you about a couple of your other uh, books because you also, you have different genres of books, correct? Beside the, uh, the Crossfire series, you have other series. Right, yes. The Crossfire is a contemporary series, so it's, you know, set in present day. But I also have paranormal series which deal with, you know, vampires and, and werewolves and angels. And, and I have historical novels that, you know, are set, of course, in the past. So I, I write in numerous genres. I also have uh, futuristic stories and science fiction. And <laughs> I've been very fortunate that I've been able to, to write across a spectrum of genres and be published in all of them. Isn't that um, wonderful? I'm no. very grateful for that. Wow. How many books do you publish a year? Well, since 2007, it's been on average about five, five or six. That's really terrific. So you write them fairly quickly, or maybe not all of them? It depends. You know, some of them write, some of them, you know, kind of go very quickly, and, and you know, the story's there, they almost write themselves, and then some of them are, are much more painstaking. You know, I had one book that took me a month to write, and I had another book that took me a year to write. So, yeah. you know, it depends. Um, because I have multiple publishers and, of course, multiple series going on at the same time, uh, if I'm stuck on something or, you know, I can switch to something else, and that schedule allows me to continue to release books, even if I hit one that gives me a little bit more trouble mm-hmm. than the others. Now, when you write about the paranormal or you write about vampires or angels, do you do research for that as well? Oh, yes, yes, tremendous amounts of research. Uh, part of that, of course, is just the way I set up the world. For most people who write, you know, fantasy or science fiction, paranormal, they create a whole construct. So it's, it's their whole imagination is responsible for that world, which means the only real uh, research they have to do for that is in their head. Right, making sure that they they follow their own rules. In my case, most of my paranormal series are biblically based, so in that I have to do a lot of research mm. because, of course, there's more than one Bible. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so trying to write a series that's based, you know, when you bring in angels and and do all of that, trying to write one that's really non-denominational and kind of covers all the bases is is yeah, it's a lot of research. But that's part of the fun of it for me as a writer. Well, I just want to close by telling people about uh, what we've been talking about in the beginning, and that is your new book, Reflected in You, which is a crossfire novel. And for those of you folks who really love The Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James, um, this new book, Reflected in You, which is the second book in her crossfire series, puts Sylvia Day really on the top of the list. And it moved Fifty Shades of Grey from the top spot, uh, with her book, Reflected in You, selling 100,000 copies in its first week.
So it doubled as the, it uh, debuted as the number one best-selling book on New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly, and Canadian booksellers. So do get reflected in you. And it, it has really been such an honor to interview you, Sylvia. Do you have any closing thoughts about writing in general or people who want to write? What, what, what's your, what are your closing thoughts here? Um, well, I get a lot of questions from aspiring writers about how, how do you do it? And, you know, the number one thing, you know, if you're an aspiring writer is to finish a story. And that sounds very simplistic, but that's the hardest part <laughs> is getting to the end. And then once you get to the end, realizing when it's time to let that story go and start the second book. Mm-hmm. Once you Which finish is- the second book, you get over that sophomore hump, then you're, then you're on your way. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's all about, uh, wrapping it up to the end. It's very easy to have a lot of beginnings. It's very hard to get to the end. All right. And and closing thoughts about your newest book, Reflected in You, a Crossfire Novel. What do you what do you want our listeners to know so they'll run out and buy the book? And they should. I've read them both. They're wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, it has some dark topics in it. But at the end of the day, it's an entertainment medium. It's designed to entertain you. Um, you know, it's erotic fiction. It's also designed to arouse you. It's, there's an overall experience there as far as emotionally connecting to you, um, physically connecting to you. And so, you know, when you buy the book, I know it sounds like a, a lot of heavy topics, but when you get into it, it, it's there to entertain you, and hopefully it will. I really appreciate you coming on the, on the program, Sylvia. Stay, stay on the line. Stay on the line for a minute, please. Um, everyone, please go out and buy "Reflected in You: A Crossfire Novel." Sylvia Day, New York Times best-selling author of "Bear to You" and many other books. And uh, thanks again, Sylvia. Just wait a second. All right, folks. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.